This is the Photography Experiment podcast, episode number 14. And today's special guest only ever wanted to be a documentary photographer. He realized that dream, became a war photographer, and then changed direction to go on and become a photographer to the rich, the famous, and the royals. I'm talking about Brian Aris, and that interview's coming up in just a minute. This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoDisX. Brian Aris began his photographic career as a photojournalist, covering assignments around the world, including the civil unrest and riots in Northern Ireland, the plight of Palestinian children in Jordan, the civil war in Lebanon, famine in Africa, and the war in Vietnam. He then decided on a complete change of direction and opened a studio in London where he started photographing models for newspapers and magazines. At the same time, he broadened his studio work to include pop and rock stars such as Blondie, The Jam, Madonna, The Clash, The Boomtown Rats, Roxy Music, The Police, David Bowie, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Sting, and actors such as Meryl Streep, Anthony Hopkins, and Sophia Loren. And after three years, he turned away from the model world to concentrate on the music industry. Glamorous weddings followed, including the marriage of David Beckham to Victoria in an Irish castle. Brian went on to photograph Her Majesty the Queen Mother, Her Royal Highness Princess Margaret, and he was commissioned to produce the official portraits marking both Her Majesty the Queen's 70th birthday, later the golden wedding anniversary of her marriage to His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh. I am absolutely rapt to have you here with us today. Brian, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. When you hear that introduction... Does it amaze you or does it feel like, oh, that's just what I do? I was wondering who you were talking about. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's, uh, it's obviously, it's odd to listen to your career described in sort of that way, really. But I guess it sums it up pretty well. Yeah, I think you did a good job there. <laughs> <laughs> when you were starting out as a photojournalist, did you have any idea where photography would take you? Oh, none. I mean, I only ever had one ambition, really, and that was to be a news photographer. I had no intention of going anywhere close to studios or celebrities. It was just everything I wanted to do from the age of about 14, 15 was to go out and take pictures of news events. I think that started from a book that somebody gave me when I was about 14, 15 called Shoot First. And it was a story of a newsreel cameraman. I think his name was Ronnie Noble. And it really got to me. I just loved the idea of uh, covering those such varied kind of events and then getting involved in really quite hot news stories. So that was it. As far as I was concerned, my mind was made up and I had a very blinkered approach to it. And uh, that's all I could see in my future. That's as far as I was concerned, if I could get out and sort of do the sort of work that people like Don McCullen were, were doing. He was, still is, I think, uh, the greatest photographer of that kind of war, you know, sort of genre. That's all I ever wanted to do. So celebrity was never anywhere near, and certainly not fashion or anything like that. Sure. So when it was photojournalism, were you thinking specifically conflict, like that's what you wanted to cover? And not really, no. I started off, I got a break taking some pictures of a fire that occurred, I think I was about 15, and I ran down with the camera and took some pictures of this fire, which were well received by my father, was very uh, proud, and took me to a local paper. And through that, I got a break into, I suppose, very, very low-level journalism. And then I saw an ad for an agency in Fleet Street, Central Press Photos, I think it was called, I went and applied, I got an interview and got a job there as a runner boy. 
which basically meant you just took out other people's photographs and delivered them to the newspaper offices. But at that time, of course, all the newspapers were based in Fleet Street, and it was a very exciting kind of atmosphere to be uh, plunged into when you were 17, 16, 17. Were you given cameras and film and sent off an assignment shortly after that? No, forbidden. The, the rule then was when you joined an agency like Central Press that you started off as a runner boy and then you were taken off the street and put into the darkroom developing pictures for the printers. And if you were very lucky, you then became a junior printer and then a senior printer. And if you were really lucky when you were a senior printer, you were allowed to go out on odd assignments at the weekend, probably football, and take a few snaps. That process at that time was a seven-year process, and I just couldn't bear it. You know, I hung in there until I got on the dish, which is developing runs of the prints, and then the circle turned again, and there was a paper in my area where I lived looking for a junior photographer, and I just applied for it and said I was working in Fleet Street (laughs) at an agency, and they went for it and gave me the job. Very, very wonderful managing director of the company gave me a real break, sent me off for a a training scheme. And the senior photographer, there was only one other photographer there. His name was Bob Clegg, and he'd been around and done everything. And and he was quite happy to sit back and let me go off and do my thing. And so I had a really good break in that respect and uh, ended up doing kind of a lot of diverse work, including some golden wedding pictures. (laughs) (laughs) If you were to look back at those images that you were creating then, would you see yourself as a good photographer? Oh, God, that's right. I've got to say that's always, I think, for other people to make a judgment. I mean, I thought I I was useless at school, but I, I loved art, but I couldn't paint or do anything like that. But I had a great art teacher, and he just got me into the dark room and said, do some work with a camera, and uh, that's how it started. I mean, I can't, I'm useless with paint, you know, or sort of drawing. But So I obviously had an eye. I mean, my own personal feeling about photography is it's all about the eye. I think it's a very difficult thing to train people to have. And I look back at those pictures and I do feel that there was a certain amount of good composition going on and catching the moment, you know. So I'm still happy that I started off, I think, quite well. And and I didn't go through that rigid training that some photographers go, you know, they become an assistant, they work for a big name photographer. And a lot of the kind of, that kind of rubs off on them and they become clones of that guy quite often. And thankfully, I never went down that path. I never learnt anything really from other photographers I just grounded out myself what about when you're in the dark room and you're doing that you know that developing and printing don't you think you're influenced by the other news photographers at the time I was influenced by the sort of most senior photographer there who I would occasionally go to football with and he was just extraordinary he looked like Winston Churchill and he worked with a 5-4 speed graphic and I used to change the backs for him, you know. He taught me one thing when we used to sit by the goal at football. He used to say, you wait and wait and wait until you drop, meaning when you drop the shutter, and you don't take pictures that are not necessary. And I think that was great advice, and I still believe that to this day. I mean, obviously, with the advent of motor drives, 35 mil, a lot of things have changed now. With digital, of course, you know, it's changed completely. But I still think when you look through contact sheets, you should be able to hopefully not see 36 images the same. You should see something building towards an image and then identify that image. So that I know exactly what I'm shooting, what I'm trying to get. And I might take some shots along the way that are completely unnecessary. 
but I'll know it's leading to the final shot. And that's in portraiture, of course. You can't do that in news work. Mm -hmm, Sure. How often or how much are you shooting today? Not as much. I mean, I'm still shooting quite a bit, but not as much as I'd like to. I mean, the library keeps me busy. The business has changed a lot. You know, it just is a different world now. Thankfully, we've embraced it, and I like digital. I must say that I enjoy it, and I love working with Matthew on even some of the archival images that we can give a new lease of life to, you know, by using modern techniques. So I'm not, I'm not against it. I still would quite like film to come back a bit faster than it is because I still think <laughs> film's a wonderful, wonderful uh, vehicle. So do you see it as coming back? I think we're seeing it come back slowly, you know, through universities that are teaching. I mean, I think the kids are sort of, when they see instant gratification, they get a bit bored with it. And I think they love, you know, I'm sure you can remember the first print you developed. I certainly can. And feeling that magical moment where a piece of white paper suddenly had an image coming through in this, you know, in the developer. And that kind of anxiety and the wait for that, you know, when you're developing film. I think that's rather nice, and I wouldn't want it all the time because we, the commercial world is geared up to digital now. But I still think that wonderful romance of the film image will come back. It won't come back in the way that it was here before, but it will come back, I think, probably in the arty end of the business. Okay. Who commissions you today to do work? Is it an agent or is it the actual client? I haven't had an agent for a long time. I didn't really enjoy that experience too much. I had several agents. And I, I really didn't like that. I like to be, I suppose you're going to say that I'm a control freak and you'd probably be right, but I like <laughs> to have control. So, no, I'm very happy to sort of deal with it myself and do the things I like. And I will actually kind of put the word out and talk to people when I'm interested in shooting someone or I'm interested in doing something. I mean, I've been doing quite a lot for the last few years with Twiggy because, you know, we've known each other a while, a long time actually, since probably about 82, 83 and, of course, she's, she's fabulous to work with and she's in demand. So I do an awful lot of work with Twigs. Okay, so let's say you're going out to do a shoot with her and you want to shoot film. Do you have that freedom or do you have no. to – you don't? No. I mean, the last time I shot film, I shot Prince Andrew for his uh, uniforms, his various uh, ceremonial kind of uniforms. And I think we had, I can't remember exactly, but I think 11 or 12 uniforms to do in the day. And he's a stickler for getting everything absolutely correct with the orders and the way the uniform looks. But he's also very interested. He's a very, very keen photographer. And he suggested we shoot it on film. Well, thankfully, my assistant, who's an Aussie with a wonderful can-do attitude, said, no, I can reload. You know, I'm up with that. So we dug out the Hasselblad and we went off with the Hasselblad and the digitals. I put the Hasselblad up and it was honestly, you know, it's like riding a bike. I mean, the moment you pick the camera up, it's familiar again to you. So I was as happy as Larry We set up to do the first shot. Even by the end of that first shot, we knew it just wasn't going to be possible. And it was Prince Andrew who said... Why did you say it wasn't going to be possible? Because it's just more time-consuming. You know, the whole act of having the Hasselblad on a tripod and setting it up and just taking the pictures on film is so much slower than when you work on digital. I mean, I work on digital handheld, and I love that aspect of it because I love 35mm handheld pictures. That's the way I use the digital camera, so... We did the first uniform and then decided perhaps we'd better go to digital. So was that a discussion that you had with Prince Andrew? Yeah, yeah. He just said, I think perhaps we should do it on digital because it is slower, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it's definitely slower and we've got an awful lot to get through. And I think that's what's happened today in the commercial world we live in. 
there's an expectation now. Whereas before, you know, I mean, when I used to be at Holborn Studios, Bailey would often be in the studio next door. And, you know, I'd come in and expect to do four or five setups. He would do two. And that kind of way of dealing with the business has disappeared now. You really can't, you know. I mean, sometimes with Twigs, we go in the studio and we'll do 16 setups in a day. I've just got to that point where they just expect to walk in, look at a screen, see them immediately hit the screen, see the image immediately. I mean, everything's so instantaneous now. It's more like making films, you know, when you look at the monitor, when you do a video or a film. And I don't like that. I mean, I resist like mad shooting like that. I'll shoot to card and then we'll download and let them look at it at that point. But more and more, the case is, of course, that's not the way they want to work. The clients don't like that, you know. But I don't like working like that because what happens is you get three, four people sitting around a monitor with Matthew, all with different opinions of what you should be doing. And by the time they've made their comments, you've moved on because of the delay. I know it's not great, the delay, but there is a delay. And I'm doing shot, you know, I'm on 10 frames in and they're looking at frame five, and I've moved on. And you hear the muttering going on, you know, and it's not a good way to work that. For sure. You mentioned Matthew. You also mentioned an assistant. Are they one and the same person, or do you have multiple people there? Matthew does the digital side and also looks after the archive. I've got an assistant. He's been with me for quite a long time now. His name's Glenn Arkadieff, and he's from Brisbane. He's the second Aussie assistant I've had. No, third, third. (laughs) Why Aussies? Oh, just attitude. Oh, really? Good, good attitude. Fabulous attitude, yeah. I mean, I get one small story about him. I had an Aussie assistant some years back now. I think it was the first one I had, and he went back to see the family. He went back to Sydney for Christmas. He was away for three weeks or whatever it was. I got a job to photograph Duran Duran in Sydney at the Opera House, on the Opera House steps. It was January the 3rd, I think, or something like that, January the 3rd or 4th. He came back on the second, something like the second, and we were due to shoot on the, go on the fourth, shoot on the sixth. And I called him and I said, welcome back. Booked someone else to come with me to Sydney because, you know, it's in two days' time, you just got back. And he said, hey, mate, no, 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 I'm on that. I need the air miles. (laughs) I said, you're kidding me. He went, no, no, surprise the girlfriend. (laughs) I mean, so he came with me and, you know, he returned. And we were only in Sydney four days and then we flew back again. (laughs) Well, that's good good air miles. (laughs) Good air miles and, you know, he didn't gripe about anything. And, And that's what I love. And it's been true of, I mean, Glenn's been with me for, I don't know, five or six years maybe now you know so he's going to live in england he's settled here i think he's going to get married here so yeah it's the old can-do attitude andrew that's so good to hear that's really good i do want to talk about your library and how that's working and what that does how that makes up your business today but let me take you back to when you were shooting those conflicts when you were a young man when you were doing that did you think i've found it this is my life this is what i want to be doing Without doubt, yeah. From the local newspaper, I went to a London agency that specialised in news, owned by a guy called John Rogers, and he came up with a marvellous idea, which was to... I mean, I had a little sports car at that point, and he came up with the idea of putting two-way radios in all of our cars, and then through... I don't know, we better not discuss too much how we found his information. But we worked ourselves into the ground and we were on the road all the time. And, you know, he would find out what was going on. Quite often I'd get to, I got to one shooting in North London. It turned out to be an assassination of an Albanian. I got there and he was still lying on the ground, blood pouring out of his head, with two cops standing looking at him, wondering what had happened. And I turned up with a camera. 
I mean, that's how quick we got to things at times. We had some amazing experiences in that two or three year period I worked for them because we could get to things very quickly and cover, um, you know, when I got to hear the green train crash almost at the same time as the first fire engines got there. So that was a fantastic period of time for me and I loved it. And I would have carried on there, but Northern Ireland was brewing up and so we're talking now 68, 69 time. John just didn't want to cover Northern Ireland. He'd been out himself and had a look at it. I think he'd gone in 68 or something, but he just didn't think it was going to be commercial. I don't don't know. I, I never really got to the bottom of why. I'd had such a lot of success with him that all the major newspapers in London knew me because, you know, we were delivering my pictures and they were buying them as news pictures. So I went and I had a good relationship with the London Daily Mirror. So I went to the Mirror and I said, look, I want to go to Northern Ireland and what about it? And they said, okay. And so I got the chance to go. And the timing, of course, was exactly the right time to go. It was when it all all happened. And I kept going, you know, through to, I don't know, 72, I think, 73 maybe. You'd go up for like a a week at a time and photograph what you could? No, we used to go weekends because all the troubles were usually at the weekends. So we'd go out on Friday and come back Sunday night usually. That was the general way. And you'd meet the same guys out there. And that's when I started to realise that it was definitely what I wanted to do because it's very hard to explain if you're not involved in that business. But the camaraderie is fantastic. And you're meeting top-notch guys. I mean, I worked alongside Gilles Caron. You know, I mean, he was just, he was shooting for Parry Match. And he was just fantastic to work alongside and watch how quick his reactions were to everything. So, you know, that was a great period of time. And it suddenly became international, if you like, because I realised that if I can do this and get along with these guys, then I could certainly have a go at doing some of the Middle Eastern things or maybe although it was getting late for Vietnam, maybe, who knows, I might get a chance to get out there. And you did? I did. I did through doing stuff for Save the Children Fund. And Save the Children, I mean, I think it's a brilliant organisation. And, yeah, I started to do some work for them and got the opportunity to go in 72 the first time. And I went back in 75, obviously, just before it fell. So when you go to jobs like that for Save the Children or for a newspaper, do you get a box of film? You take your cameras and they say, get what you can, or do you have a strict shot list you have to get? No, 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 no direction at all. They were great to work for because they wanted to just get their, the images they wanted out there. They wanted people to see what was going on. Sadly, you know, in many ways, it was quite a conservative organisation. And we ran into problems because I really strongly feel you should shoot and show the brutality and how vile war is, and famine. We ran into one or two issues because, you know, they didn't want pictures put out that were really distressing. And in fact, on the first famine I did, you know, it was really, it did become quite a major argument. And they just simply wanted softer images to go to the Telegraph, uh, which I think was quite their biggest revenue. And I said, no, you know, I want them to go to the tabloids. And, and you can't do both? You can't shoot both and have them distributed to both? You can shoot, yeah, you could, but they didn't particularly want the tabloid side uh, at that time. I think, as I say, it was a very conservative organisation. But I went to The Sun because I'd had a good relationship with the picture editor who was The Sun at that point, and they were brilliant. I mean, they ran, you know, they ran pictures that I think were quite distressing, 
I mean, they'd been wrong before because Kent Gavin had done it at the Mirror with Biafra. You know, I mean, I think it was Mike Malloy at that point who ran the Mirror and he was very picture-led and he wanted, you know, that kind of material to be published. And it was really rewarding for me because it got a fantastic response. The monies came in and it really sort of fixed my mind on that's what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Why stop all that? I mean, I can hear that you're passionate about it. You loved what you were doing. Why come back and open a studio and shoot models? Well, I was, I suppose, really, in 75, I came out just before Saigon fell on one of the last flights out to Paris. I had some really great material of the evacuation of the, you know, kind of particularly in relationship to the orphans that were trying to be got out. At that time, I was working through an agency in America and we shipped to America. And as we shipped, the North Vietnamese went into Saigon. So the timing seemed to me to be perfect, but the Americans passed on the pictures and just said, no, it's a dead story now. And that horrified me, and uh, I, got, I got very disillusioned about it. With the whole news thing. Yeah, it really hit me. I mean, I came back, it was April 1975, and uh, I had a little cottage in the country, and you know, I walked into the cottage, and the little lady next door, Mrs. Hooker, she'd come in to see if I was all right, and she'd come in and have a cup of tea. I think she was in her late 70s, maybe 80. And there in the corner was a little television showing, the news was on and showing Vietnam. And she said, oh, where have you, you've been away? And I said, I've been there, Mrs. Hooker, I've been in Vietnam. And she looked at the TV and she looked at me and she went, oh, nice. She, My son's cucumbers are really coming on this year. <laughs> and I thought, do you know, I like that, I like this. And uh, I'm going to move out of London, I'm going to move to the country and rethink it, um, which is what I did, you know, within, I think, well, that was 75, April, so by April 76, I'd actually sold up in London, bought a much bigger house in Kent, and rethought everything. And I'd had so many offers to take pictures of models, and I had friends who were PRs who were saying, you know, take pictures of my pop star. Why were these people, why were these agents coming to you at that stage? I mean, you'd only shot photojournalism, they would be looking for a totally different style of image, wouldn't they? Yeah, but I'm thankful that I had quite a good social life in London. And, you know, I'd met quite a lot of people that were outside of, uh, but through the newspapers but and magazines, I'd met people that were outside of uh, news who were dealing with celebrity at that stage. I mean, it's quite early days, very unlike today. And I'd met one or two PRs who were in, actually in record companies and they were mates, and they started to say, well, you know, why don't you take a picture of David Essex? Or, And then I thought, well, maybe I'll try. Let's see. And I was absolutely convinced that it was for a year, maybe, maybe two, and then when I saw something I'd want to do, I'd go back to news. Of course, that was the biggest mistake I ever made. I went back to news when I met Goldoff and, you know, finally got involved with Band-Aid and went back to Ethiopia, but no, but that period of time was when the music business exploded and I was just in there doing it. So you were trapped in a way in, into, you know, photographing people in the music business. When these PRs were coming to you, these acquaintances or friends? Friends, yeah, mates. Still today, I'm pleased to say. Oh, fantastic. So what do you think they were thinking when they first asked you to photograph these celebrities? Were they thinking you're going to get a different look for them or they were just giving you the job because you're a mate? I think initially they just wanted to get me going, doing something different, you know. And you've got to remember at that point, no one, it, it's not like today. I mean, they didn't really know. It was, well, what are we going to do with Debbie Harry, you know? 
So let's get her in and put her in front of, you know, three photographers and see what happens. So it wasn't just me. I mean, there were other people out there getting pictures. I remember going on one session and a guy called Brian Moody came in and said hello to me. He was in the next studio and he said, who are you doing? I said, doing someone from America called Madonna. <laughs> I love it. He said, oh, he said, yeah. He said, did they ask you about someone called Cindy Lauper or something? I said, yeah, yeah but I went for Madonna. I thought it was more interesting. <laughs> I can't believe this. Oh, that's how casual it was, honestly. I mean, if you look through my diaries of the early 80s, you know, through to 86, 7, 8, they're just funny. I mean, I look back at them now and think that can't possibly be what I did. But I've got the Polaroids in there, you know, so I can you know, I can look and see, oh, I did Elton John in the afternoon and Van Morrison in the morning and, and next day I did George Michael and the next day I did Debbie Harry. And it's just ridiculous. But that period through the 80s was like that, you know, and everyone wanted to be in London and everyone wanted to come here and do stuff. And then, of course, you know, it, it worked the other way where I suddenly was being asked, well, let's go to New York and do people. And, and that's rather intoxicating. You know, you start to like that. And the Boomtown Rats, well, let's go to Singapore and let's go to the Far East. And, and then police, you know, come on the tour to India and Africa. Well, that's not a bad idea. And, of course, you know, the joy of doing that is the thing I love most of all. You can go back and do repertage. So, you know, if you've got the band, if you've got uh, Police, for example, in Bombay, as it was then, I just shot repertage. And um, that was just absolute brilliant fun for me and still is. I still enjoy it, you know, I still enjoy it to this day. I can totally get that that's falling back to what you know. Talk to me about when... Madonna turns up to the studio and, you know, your PR mates, they just get some photos for us. Like, where do you even start? Like, what's running through your head at that time? I developed a kind of look that I liked in the studio using tapestries and canvases and rough backgrounds. So I just set that up, got on with it. I mean, I don't really think it out too much. You know, at the end of the day, what you want is I think you want to be able to sit in the dressing room, the makeup area and talk to people. I really think it's quite an intimidating experience having your picture taken and I don't care who it is. I mean, I, okay, you could make an exception perhaps for Kate Moss or Madonna, you know, Jerry Hall. But the majority of people, particularly actors, politicians, uh, it's not an easy experience. So my view was, A, I'm very lucky that I'm on one-to-one with an individual that, like Van Morrison, whose work I absolutely loved. So I'm really blessed that I've got the opportunity to sit and talk to the guy let's just take the pictures at the end. That really worked for me, you know, sitting in the dressing room and chatting to people. To the artist that you're going to photograph? Is that who you're chatting to? Yeah. It really worked for me. It just was out of curiosity of getting to know people, you know, and it suddenly became very apparent very early that that's a very vulnerable area, the dressing room, particularly for the girls, you know. You're seeing people stripped back. You can break barriers down in that point in time. And I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It seemed to work very well. I mean, it seemed I I got a lot of feedback, you know, saying how much people enjoyed that interaction. And rather than just walk in, not even be introduced to the photographer, stand in front of the camera, no direction. I mean, how can you be photographed like that? I love giving them direction. You know, I'm really controlling in that way and I don't want it. Okay, you'll get spontaneity sooner or later out of it, but you've got to give people help. I think it's a tough thing being photographed. See, I've got two trains of thought here. One is that I love the way you've described that the subject 
feels vulnerable. When my question to you was, surely you must have felt intimidated by photographing these people, but you've totally turned that on its head. But before you answer that or talk about that, when you go to talking to these celebrities or musicians or models in the dressing room and you get an idea of their personality and what you might like to photograph Mm -hmm. in regard to their look, you've already got a set all set up and lights set up in the studio. So is that going to change once you've got to know the subject? The way I used to set things up, would I do what I would call my Rembrandt background, which I, you know, I, I love Rembrandt self-portrait. So that, that sort of, you know, canvassy background that Irving Penn and Richard Averton used a lot. I'd always have that set up because that's what I used to love. I used to like that look. But then we'd set up a separate light, absolutely stark background. Not, I don't like particularly white, but um, platinum grey and have a second light ready in case we wanted to go for a sort of very clean look. But that was it. You know, I think the essence of the picture is it's not about the background. I mean, not in what I do, and I don't think it should be there for that kind of portrait. I think it should be pretty... Well, I'm a big Avedon fan, so you know immediately that platinum grey, stark background, is a good alternative to the canvas of Irving Penn. Yeah. So you really, you wouldn't be changing too much. Really, the whole getting to know the subject in the dressing room is just to build a connection before you start shooting. Correct. And also, I mean, the other thing about photographing people who are famous, you know, I say to, you know, we used to have hairdresser, makeup artist, stylist, yeah, team of people there, PR, PR's assistant, the PR's assistant, assistant. And I used to say to everybody, you know, you leave your ego at the door. There's only one ego in the studio, and that belongs to the person being photographed. And that's still my rule today. I won't have egotistical or sycophantic people in the studio. I hate it. I think you've got to be professional. If you deal with people professionally and cut out all of the uh, autograph hunting, you get an awful lot further than being sycophantic. Have you kicked people out of your shoots? Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Is it a regular occurrence? To this day, I mean, I don't know who it was, but I remember on the Madonna shoot, one of her guys came over and tried to take a Polaroid. And I said, wait, put that back. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> I'm saying, you don't take a Polaroid out of my studio. And if you ask me, I'll think about it. But the answer will still be, leave it there. It's not leaving the studio. And he got really chunky. And we said, out, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's not on. And you've got to have rules and you've got to play by them. And it's not rules that just for one side. You can't have people walk in and behave like that. I won't have it, you know. It's not right. Sure, for sure you photographed a lot of famous people. Do you ever feel intimidated or have you ever feel intimidated photographing your subject? I don't think, they say never meet your uh, heroes, don't they? But my heroes that I've met have always been absolutely brilliant and have never let me down. So I'd never really been intimidated and I thought I was pretty cool and could deal with most things. But of course, as a regular working class boy, you know, from the UK, when you come to the royal family, it slightly changes. And so the most nervous I think I've ever been was the first time with the royal family, and that was David Lindley's wedding, where they said to me, while I was doing the formal group shots at the palace, and when they said, when you hear the crunch of the car on the gravel, that'll be Her Majesty arriving. (laughs) (laughs) I still remember that to this day. That was really nerve-wracking. I thought the only way I could deal with it was to try and have some control. So I did. I threw the protocol out of the window and did the pictures the way you would at a normal wedding. I, I waited for David and Serena to arrive and started with them rather than 
putting Her Majesty in. That went down, that seemed to go down very well. I mean, it seemed to be, I got a nudge in the ribs from Princess Margaret, who told me the bouquet was in the wrong place. <laughs> it sounds so surreal. It was totally, totally surreal. I mean, you know, because running through your mind, I had a wonderful makeup artist there, and she'd done one or two royal jobs, and she said to me, uh, you'll be fine. Just chill out, relax. You're going to be fine. But the person that made it for me was one of the waitresses at the palace, dressed up in her white kind of pinny, came over to me and she said, you look like you're, this is before they arrived, you know, arrived from the Abbey. You look like you're a bit worried. And I said, well, I am a little bit nervous. And she said, don't you worry. Now, how are you going to do this? <laughs> so I told her and she said, oh, you leave Her Majesty to me. I'll give her a drink when she arrives and it'll be fine. It was just brilliant, you know, that one little moment just made me feel so good. And I thought, this Cockney lady, and sure enough, there she was waiting with the two drinks for the Queen and uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, who took them off the salver and just walked on. And she looked at me as, she didn't wink, but I thought she was going to wink at me, the waitress. (laughs) And that was wonderful. And then afterwards, you know, I went to some friends through dinner for me uh, very late at uh, Claridge's at 11.30 when the reception finished. And I walked down, I came out and walked down the mail, undid my tie. And it was just the most wonderful feeling of knowing I hadn't seen anything. We were on film, but knowing that it had just gone so well. And some of the limousines were coming out of the palace and people were waving. And I just got to Claridge's on cloud, you know, right up there. So the most nerve-wracking, but then the most rewarding. How many people did you have with you assisting you on that that day? One. You only need one. I mean, you really don't need groups of people doing it. It gets chaotic when you have lots of people running around. And then you worry about them. Are they going to get nervous? You know, are they going to let you down? So it's best not to have teams of people like that. Okay, and how did you ever get picked for that job in the first place? I have no idea. Really? I'd shot some pictures of David Lindley beforehand, and he'd like them, and we got on very well. He called and said he was getting engaged. Would I do some engagement pictures for him? We did some engagement photographs. We did them out at Frognall, where I think where Tony Armstrong Jones shot the Aston Martin pictures with Princess Margaret. David's got a great sense of history, and you know I think he's you know he just wanted a connection to the past. And they were very well received. Those images. We did some there, and we did a session in the studio on the release to announce their engagement. And it just followed on from there, really. Fantastic. So are you one of the go-to photographers now for the royal family? Is that the way it works? No, not at all. I mean, I think, you know, when... I'm trying to think what year that was. It was probably 96, 97, something like that. No, the Palace, there aren't that many. If you look at the list of photographers who've photographed Her Majesty over the years, it's quite a small list. But there's no go-to person, I don't think. I think each household has kind of little favourites. But you photographed quite a few, like a range. I have, yeah. Yeah, I have. But no, I don't think I'm a go-to. I don't think there are go-to photographers for that. I think it's just a question of who the household sort of feel, you know, they've used Annie Leibovitz, much to my surprise. That really caught me out. I didn't expect, you know, to see Annie Leibovitz shooting those images. Mm-hmm. Let's say there was a a royal wedding coming up or a party or something they wanted you to photograph. Who would you expect a call from? Well, the household would decide who they want to approach. I still put work through an agency in London called Camera Press. I still put, you know, syndication work occasionally through them outside of the UK. 
and they handle the royal jobs. So that'll be the first port of call, I would think. I mean, you know, it'll be a call to them to decide, you know, perhaps who's available, who's around or what sort of job it is. And it'll go from there. But it's been very, it's been very interesting watching the way the younger royals have dealt with it, and, and they've gone to you know kind of different photographers, and that's rather refreshing in a way. Why? In what way? Well, I don't like the idea of you know going in for security and for kind of what's been done before. I think it's always worth taking a chance and giving new people a, a go at it. No, I'm not one for. Uh, I don't advocate that. Oh well, we've used Cecil Beaton. Let's keep using him for 25 years. I think if someone's, you know, around who looks good, who looks their work is interesting, give them a break. I'm all for that. Yeah, but surely they would see your images of, say, the rock stars that you photographed. You can't take that same approach for the royal family. Surely they must be expecting a certain look. I don't know about that. I mean, I think they expect to be made to look good. And I think a certain conservative element of respectability about it. I remember Terry O'Neill saying to me, I rang Terry, I said, I'm doing, um, I've got a royal shoot to do. And he'd already shot Her Majesty. And he said to me, well, I'll tell you one thing. Well, you'll be nervous, but when you've done it, there isn't an actress or pop star in the world that's going to bother you. <laughs> Was that true? Absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, absolutely true. But also, I think, once you've done it, you also go into that kind of conservative box and perhaps you lose some of the more avant-garde jobs because people think you're in the mainstream. And I think that plays a part and your business changes a little bit. Right, yeah, okay. I get that. I understand that. Does your name come up as a royal photographer? I suppose so, yeah, because, you know, I've shot official pictures for the Golden Wedding, Her Majesty's 70th. The Lindley wedding, I did uh, Peter, Princess Anne's son's wedding when all the royal family were at St George's Chapel. Yeah, Princess Margaret, you know, it goes on. So I guess, yeah, probably on the internet, it's probably the links there. But I just think of myself as a, a photographer that's, you know, been lucky enough to get that opportunity to photograph Her Majesty the Queen. Yeah, for sure. At the moment, I'm looking... At your website, I'm in the store page. I'm looking at a photo, or it's like a triptych of Debbie Harry. Oh, right, yeah. And you've got the treatment there. She's got white hair in one, green hair in another, white hair in the next, and she's wearing black, green, and red, uh, the jumper. It's all different treatments for each image. If one of the younger royals books you for a shoot, can you have the ability to play and do something like that if you wanted to? I don't think that would be asked for, and I don't think that would be considered the way to go. I I think the rules, you just saw the last set of pictures. They're getting to be quite informal now, the way they're doing them with the younger royals. That's rather nice. You know, it's a different approach. Who knows where it's going to go in the future? It's changing. The modern royalty is, it just doesn't have that kind of, you know, I grew up with the um, pomp and circumstance and all the golden carriages and the coronation, you know. So I think we're living in a different age now. For sure. You mentioned briefly your library before, and it's mentioned on your website. And I know that's, well, I imagine that's a big part of your business today. Have you retained the copyright for everything you've photographed over the years? Yeah, I would say probably 90%, which isn't possible anymore. I mean, today's business world just doesn't operate in that way. I still work under those conditions. But I think if you're a, a modern photographer now, I don't know about in Australia, but certainly in London, it's very hard to keep that control over copyright. Sometimes people will split it, but quite often 
I mean, they'll just want the card handed over, you know, and I don't see that. That's a pretty disgraceful way to have to work. So I don't like that at all. But I think putting a library together the way I have and the way that Don McCullen has with his war pictures and, you know, look at uh, David Bailey's enormous back library, even though some of that, I guess, is to do with Condé Nast. You know, it's going to be very hard, I think, for modern photographers to do that. I think it's a sad state of affairs, but that's because it's become, it's a corporate, it's a business world that we're in now. And people realise, you know, the value in photography. Does your library pay a big part in your income today? It plays a big part because I'm too controlling about it. You know, I'm, I'm very, very controlling over what images go out, where they go, what they're being used for. I'm not keen on things being used for merchandising. And I wouldn't do that without going back to people I photographed. I think that would be unfair. But in terms of the editorial side, and obviously in terms of the limited edition print side, which does interest me, yeah, it does play quite a large part. It's a developing thing. We've only been doing it for a a short time. You know, just to start archiving the material was pretty daunting. I don't think we'll ever get through it all. So we've tried to be selective and take images that initially that we liked that I I like and then individuals that I liked and sort of we've done it like that so we're at a point now where we can offer quite a reasonable range of limited editions but I want to do it slowly and so we're looking at different galleries we're trying different ways it's hard to market images on the internet people I think want to look at images in a gallery or see them in front of them rather than trust they're buying them off of a screen But that's something we're exploring. We're going to launch a new website probably in November, which will just be Aris Prints, and we'll just dedicate that to print sales and limited editions. And and the fun things, you know, my partner Linda loves painting and fiddling around with my images, and what you saw in that triptych is her messing around with one of the images. And I have have absolutely no problem with that. I think it's quite a lot of fun, and I've enjoyed it. I mean, there are images you wouldn't do that to, But it kind of worked with Debbie and some of the David Bowie material. So we've played around and that's been enjoyable and it'll be fun. Actually, they've sold quite well. So we'll see how they progress when we put them on the website. Very cool. Do you still get the final say then? So did you say it was Linda? Linda, yeah. So she's done some work on your Debbie Harry images there with her painterly effects. Do you get the say then whether that goes out or not or is it her final say? She's got quite a lot of acrylic paint that's been wasted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no, so, I mean, listen, some of the things she's done have been great fun and I've really loved them. And I thought, what? And people like them. So oh, I love it. It's a drew me straight in that one there. Well, that series. Yeah. We're in the process of, of moving home. So the paintbrushes are taking a you know back seat at the moment. But I'm sure as time goes on, she'll, you know, next year, she'll probably pick them up again and probably tamper with some more of my photographs. <laughs> well, let's stay with one of these Debbie Harry images for a minute. Let's say you want to use one of these images to exhibit and to maybe generate some sales. And then Linda does some work on that. Do you have to put anything back past the artist that you photographed? No. In fact, I worked with Debbie last year and we sat in the Winnebago at a festival and Debbie said to me, you know, I see so many of my pictures out there. You should put more of the images out. I love them. Why don't you get more out there? So that was quite encouraging, really. I mean, she's really brilliant, Debbie, and she's always been incredibly supportive. I mean, we've worked together since 1977, I think. <laughs> That's incredible. Okay, what about Madonna? I mean, presuming you don't see her as often. Can you go and market and put anything you like out there that's in your archive? Yeah, they're my copyright. But the images I have of Madonna are probably not as commercial because they were taken in 83 or whatever. But 
Yeah, I mean, I met her at Live 8. We did a picture with Bob because she wanted to be photographed with Bob, but I have no contact with her. I mean, she does wonderful work with, you know, she's done some wonderful images, hasn't she? I mean, Stephen Mizell, who I love his work, and she's done some great pictures with him. Let me just ask you, when a celebrity comes to you now from whatever genre, do they get any say in how the images look or do you get the artistic idea and you get to run with what you're thinking of? I don't want to be sounding like an Ayatollah. (laughs) At the end of the day, it's always the discussion about how someone wants to look and what they want to wear and how their hair is and, you know, is it going to be a big smiley thing or is it going to be a moody thing? There's always that discussion beforehand and I think you have to have that and you've got to listen to what people, first of all, how people perceive themselves how they want to market themselves, you can't, you can't be a dictator in those things. It's a conversation that has to take place, in my opinion, before you even you know, get near the camera. Is this you with the artist or is this with you and the PR agent? With the artist, with sometimes with the stylist and the makeup artist and the hairdresser. Quite often that, that, you know, that kind of combination, everyone has an opinion and, and you've got to work together as a team. I always say that you know, these things, this teamwork... I mean, I just made a video with Joan Collins and, uh, you know, I got the chance to direct it and I'm in it because they wanted me photographing Joan. And that's gone out and I'm very happy with it. But that involved probably 12 people, you know, and I loved it because I love the edit. I love working with a great editor. The DOP was superb. The guy operating the Steadicam, second unit Steadicam was fantastic. For me, that was blissful. And in many ways, it's an area that I've always kind of, I've done a few videos, but I've always kind of thought, no, I don't, I don't really want to do that. But actually, I really enjoyed it this time. That's an area that perhaps I should have explored a bit more, but you know. You enjoyed it because of the collaboration or because of the final product? Well, I, the collaboration. I love that uh, teamwork. And it goes back to what I said to you about the camaraderie, you know, when you sit in a hotel room in Beirut or, you know, Belfast, with a certain bunch of people that are like-minded, you know, that get along, competitive, because that's really important. But once the camera's down, you're a bunch of people that have very similar kind of take on life. And that's rather nice. And so I love teamwork. Yeah. And stills are like that because you work with a hairdresser and makeup artist you like. You know, in the 80s, I worked with I think, only two makeup artists because I loved them so much. <laughs> Fantastic. Let me just slowly wrap this up and I would love to hear, and I'm sure the listener would too, where do you get your inspiration from today? It's the same process that I've always gone through, which is walking with a blank mind. (laughs) (laughs) Really? No preconceived ideas? No. I mean, unless I'm I'm briefed, unless someone sends me a brief, which sometimes I have to say I really don't like, when an art director's made the decision that it's got to be shot with, you know, I don't know, some shadow here and that that shadow there. I don't like that. Uh, So, no, I like going in with a blank canvas and uh, thinking on my feet and trying to do something on the day. And I don't swat up. I mean, you know, I'll read up a little bit about the individual so I'm knowledgeable about the individual, only so that I can have a conversation before the shoot. So are you looking at other photographers' work, at artists' work? Are you listening to music to get inspiration? Is there any other sort of visual stimulation that you're using to bring into your shoots? I have to say, I think we're overloaded with visual stimulation. In a way, I think you have to cut off from it sometimes because we're bombarded with it 24-7. You know, it doesn't stop. You know, I look at Italian Vogue. I like Italian Vogue. I don't look at very many photographic magazines. 
you know, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be thinking like that. I just want, as I said to you, I like the idea of just going in with a camera and a blank canvas and seeing what we can turn up on the day. And I love the reportage thing because you don't know what you're going to get out of that. You don't know where you're headed when you're in Bombay or when you're in Belfast or when you're in, you know, you're out with Geldof in Thailand. You don't know where you're going to end up and you have to think on your feet. And I absolutely love that, that aspect of it. That's why I used to also enjoy shooting the concerts. You know, we used to have a simple way of shooting. We shoot on FP4 black and white film, uprate it to 800 ASA. Had the guy in London had a way of developing that and... I could shoot in the dark almost. And I absolutely loved it because live concerts are like shooting reportage, you know, in, in a violent sort of situation. If you think about it, they are. Yeah. You know, you've got the crowd on your back, they don't want you there. And you've got the artist who you really don't know what he's going to do or her. You don't know how they're going to perform, if they're going to be in a good mood, bad mood. That's brilliant. I love it. Last question for you. You said at the very beginning that I think it was a book that you read or a title of a book that was Shoot First, or was it a photographer that said that to you? No, it was a paperback. The title was Shoot First, and I think it was by newsreel cameraman called Ronnie Noble. One of the things I remember that came out of that book was he filmed the derby, and he was standing on top of a car with his tripod strapped down, following the horses around them. Oh, <laughs> just moving with them. And I thought that was genius. I mean, that's me. I thought, yeah, I want to do that. That's genius. <laughs> so is the inference shoot first, ask questions later? <laughs> well, I think that's always got to be the photographer's way when you're doing journalistic stuff. You, you know, you can never hesitate. You've got to only think. I mean, I couldn't. I'm quite squeamish, you know, and I think if you took the camera away, the camera acts as a real barrier and take it away, and I don't think I'd be very good at some of the events I've been to. And considering you photographed, like when you were 16, you said uh, someone with their brains hanging out of their head. That's... Absolutely. I mean, if I came across that in the street, I would feel very differently. You put the camera up and it, you become detached and you start composing pictures and you, your brain's operating in a different way. And it does allow you to get through those moments that are really can be quite difficult. You know, I mean, particularly I found the famines really, really difficult you know, where children are being measured around their arms to see whether they're going to be fed. And children, are, I mean, the first camp I went to in Ethiopia, they were losing eight children a night through malnutrition. I mean, you look at Yemen now. We've just had a film on here, Channel 4, 30 Minutes on Yemen. It's disgraceful that that's allowed. And, you know, I mean, I do get very passionate about it. I think it's a disgrace that we're allowing that to go on in Aleppo. We're seeing it all over the Middle East, and it's, it's tragic. And we don't seem to learn. And malnutrition in Yemen, is a massive, massive issue at the moment. And who's reporting that? You know, it's not being reported. And I find that very sad that we haven't learned anything since the, the dreadful famines in, uh, in Africa. Do you think it's not being reported because people don't want to hear about it or see it? I have no idea. I guess it's a political decision. I'm delighted that Channel 4 did it. I thought it was extremely challenging to watch, um, very moving. And for me, sad because it's just deja vu. And I was really naive, maybe. But, you know, I always hoped that in my lifetime I'd see Ireland settled. Perhaps that's true. I really felt passionately about the Israel-Palestinian thing. We're not seeing that settled. And now what we're seeing, on the contrary, you know, is the Middle East just shredding itself apart. 
And famine, war's one thing, but when you see famine, which is what you're seeing in Yemen at the moment, I find that heartbreaking. I know I've got to let you go here, but I can hear how passionate you are about this. Do you feel the same way when you're photographing celebrities? It's a challenge. You know, I think taking photographs is always a challenge, and that's what I love about it. So I don't feel the same way because obviously the importance in my mind is a different kind of importance. You know, I just want the person or the client to be happy, and I want to walk away feeling happy. I'm not interested in doing a Diane Arbus on people. You know, I don't like walks and all. I quite like you know, celebrity photography. I quite enjoy it. But it doesn't have the stature and importance of going into a zone like Yemen and actually bringing out pictures that make people want to change the situation. That happened in Ethiopia. You know, Band-Aid changed a whole generation, really. I just did the Ebola thing with Bob. And, you know, you've got the younger British musicians just as passionate as the musicians that did Live Aid, Live 8, You know, they're just as passionate. There was no need to lecture them. They were right behind the Ebola campaign. And that's really wonderful. However, you want to see a result. And with the Ebola campaign, there was a positive result. But with the other situations, we're not seeing anything very positive at the moment. And that's a little depressing, I think. Mm -hmm. Brian, this has been an absolute pleasure for me. I know the listener is going to want to thank you. So I'm going to do that on behalf of them for coming on the show. We appreciate your time. And like I said, it's been a privilege and an honor to chat to you and looking forward to sharing this with the audience, the listener, and also links to your website and to your work if they're not familiar with it already. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for asking me. It's been enjoyable talking to you and uh, it's given me a few things to think about. (laughs) That's always a nice thing. Thanks, Brian. Have a good day. Take care. All righty. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brian Aris. Brian, if you're listening again, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing what you did. I could have spoken to you for literally hours and hours. Uh, It was tough to to wind things up. For you, the listener, if you want to find out more about Brian, I've got links to anything and everything that he mentioned in the interview, and you can find them in the show notes for today's episode over at photobizx.com forward slash TPX14. Along with those links, you'll find examples of some of Brian's work, but more importantly, a link to his revamped and new website where you can see much more of his amazing work. There's also a comments area at the bottom of the show notes there. Feel free to leave your feedback if you want to just say thanks to Brian for coming on the show. If you've got a question for him, maybe something that I didn't ask that you'd like an answer to, by all means use that comments area and I'm sure Brian will be happy to come back and answer those. Again, those show notes are at photobizx.com forward slash tpx14. That's it for this episode. Have an awesome week and I'll chat to you soon. Bye for now. been listening to the photo experiment podcast with andrew helmich brought to you by photo biz x the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business to learn more head to photobizx.com